0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to our discussion—a continuation of our discussion from last week. Too many good ideas to fit into one episode. In in fact, probably too many good ideas to fit into a, a quarter of thirteen episodes. But we're going to do our best at sort of wrapping up the introductory chapters of the Bible. Uh, our analysis, our discussion of of Genesis one, two, and three, as a as a story that sets the scene that gives us a starting point uh from which we can then discuss what god's you know interventions are before we before we study the solution we we want to get a a fairly clear picture of the problem and uh we're very glad that you can join us my name's cameron and uh i have just left ken's house in great haste to get back to my house in time for me to call ken to record this episode
1: (laughs) and it was great to have you here cam ken here Um, I'm going to say that I'm recording from a position of gratefulness. Uh, That position arises because I think we um, tested our listeners' patience last week with a very long episode and they were very gracious to us to return this week for what we are fully intending to be a much briefer and more efficient and every bit as fun discussion I'm Luke. I'm recording from a position of
2: unrepentance. I make no apologies for the length of our last <laughs> podcast and I only wish they could
1: be longer. Uh, well, I certainly enjoyed them.
3: <laughs> and my name's Lachlan in New South Wales and I'm recording with an attitude of tiredness because I was the one who had to edit last week's episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, well, well
0: done. I, we've we've poked a little bit of fun previously at the at the concept of a plain reading. Uh if it is indeed possible uh, to understand exactly what the Bible wants to say with uh, at, at first sight perhaps we don't need the episode perhaps we could just distribute an audio book of, of Genesis um, I've, I've noticed that Adventists are very keen on a plain reading and then spend a huge amount of time going into granular detail about exactly what that reading should be which seems to suggest it's not quite as plain as, <laughs> as, as we claim if it requires so much explanation uh, anyway where we left last week was uh, an observation, like you were making, that the concept of the fall—it's uh, in what sense is it a fall? What we see post Genesis three is a deterioration of the human condition, but but also uh, the emergence of of an increasing moral awareness. Um, it is indeed the knowledge of good and evil, and, and we start seeing heroic characters. That progressively, through a growth of knowledge, uh, gain a clearer and clearer insight of God. And, uh, and w- w- really what seems to happen is a divergence. I'll, I'll give one example. Um, this is one that we've commented on previously. Uh, when Noah is told that God's going to destroy the world, uh, he just says, oh, all right, well, God's going to destroy the world. And he-, he follows God's instructions. And he's seen as a hero of faith, as he should be. Abraham is seen as a much larger hero of faith, uh, partly because of that famous account where God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham intervenes uh, to argue on behalf of the people in in the city, and um, and Abraham is 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 saying to God, uh, you're allowed to kill people, but only kill the guilty ones. Don't kill the innocent ones as well. And then then we get to Moses who who's wandering in the desert with people who are obviously guilty they've just been caught worshipping a golden calf and moses intervenes on their behalf and and what we see in that in that uh sort of contrast of those three characters is is a growing awareness of what god's like and moses got it much more right than than the other so so the fall is not just a downward trajectory it's also an upward um upward one we we're, we're seeing things a bit more clearly
3: Um, There's a a couple of things that we should look at, but uh, I might just point out that that's exactly what we saw last week in our discussion of Genesis 2. And, of course, we were a little bit tongue-in-cheek to try and identify the fall before it fell. But remember in Genesis chapter 2, there was a problem. God identified something was not good in his creation, so that's something falling short of God's expectations or ideals. But then God steps in and fixed it. And so, in Genesis two, before the fall, so to speak, we actually already get a little microcosm of this concept of the trajectory of God's saving efforts in in the history of His created world. Because He identifies a problem, He doesn't ask Adam to fix it. He steps in unilaterally and fixes it, and there is, um, you know, tremendous rejoicing and and a, a really profound conclusion to that. So. Um, I think that we should be on the lookout for this. We do need to have a little bit of a look in Genesis chapter 3, though. This is the section which is most commonly identified as being the point at which God's creation falls into a state of sin. And of course, it's the story of the eating of the fruit. And there are a number of little little details in there that I find, I find don't match with the way I first was taught this story as a kid.
1: Well, the first thing that you need to notice about the serpent is that the serpent is a master cross-examiner. Uh, um, <laughs> one of the fundamental rules of cross-examination is do not ask a question you don't know the answer to. And he knows the answers to these questions. They're obvious. Mm. Uh, they are, the, They are, in fact, the truth. Uh, he says, and the other important thing about a cross-examination question is that it must be a closed question. Uh, which puts a proposition that invites a clear yes or no answer. Um, and the very first question is, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, clearly, I mean, the, we all know the answer. Uh, it's a nice closed question to which we know the answer. So master
0: cross-examiner. Well, let's, <laughs> let's go through the chapter. You've started us off, Ken. And uh, these will be passages that our listeners will have heard often. I, I I would imagine, if you haven't, then then go and read it. We we won't read the whole thing in the interests of our uh, renewed commitment to brevity. We we might just pick out the excerpts as we just look through. As uh, let's not comment on the parts we know. Let's comment on on you know the insights that we have that might be a little bit different. Uh, your comment, Ken, that the servant uh, that the serpent is is very truthful uh is is definitely the case. The serpent sticks to the facts
1: and here is one of the really, really interesting things. We always treat the truth as something that is inherently virtuous uh but the truth may not always be the servant of good sometimes. Even when it is not twisted, mm. when it is truly and accurately presented, it can still be used for bad. Yeah,
3: and it's really interesting. So, I mean, here we're using the word truth to describe the serpent. I certainly wasn't ever taught this. I thought I was taught that the serpent told half-truths and were twisted. But know what the serpent says. in The serpent says in chapter 3, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And, and remember, he is answering her quotation of God's instruction, um, which was, uh, you shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. But remember back in chapter two, when, the plant, when, when Adam was given this instruction, God clearly said, you will die in the day that you eat of it. So the serpent yeah. says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if you turn over to the end of the chapter in Genesis 3, verse 22, after God has come and talked to all three characters in this story, the man and the woman and the serpent. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. In other words, at the end of the story, God concedes that essentially what the serpent said was true. Now, the serpent attributed some motivation on God's part to this to this outcome. The serpent assumes that, that, is, that God does not want his creation to be like him. And that may be a slight twisting of the truth. It's a bit well, hard but, to argue. I don't,
1: know, I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is because God does not want us to be like him in the sense that we know good and evil. He wants us to be like him in the sense that he is good. Uh, He doesn't want the evil for us. So even that motivation is quite legitimately placed on God. But there's some really
2: interesting questions that come out of that. Um, And I was thinking, I've been thinking about this since our discussion last week. And then another couple just popped up from both yours and Lachlan's comments, Ken. Um, So one question is, what is it about God... That allows him to know good and evil, and yet be good. That's one thing, you know, and that's a difference with humans because obviously, um, well, you know, according to this story, and also this is something which is backed up by the evidence of our existence. If humans know evil, they are not capable of being good exclusively. We can try, we do our best, um, we don't succeed. Um, usually, you know, we fail at least once a day, uh, if not more. Um, Another question is, um, I note that knowing good and evil is something which distinguishes people from animals, generally speaking. We can go into that particular concept a lot more if we had time to do so. Um, but it's certainly true and that it, it's certainly true that animals, you would say, do not really have a concept of good and evil. What they do is done out of instinct or survival. They're not animals. Don't plan. Uh, This is something I heard. I had a um, an interview with Jane Goodall really recently, and she was talking about the social interactions of chimps. Obviously, that's a thing that she's incredibly famous for. She said they don't plan to hurt each other. When they do something um, to to attack another animal or gain social status or whatever, it's not out of some plan to do so. It's they act on instinct. And they act immediately. Um, humans, generally, as far as I'm aware, the only creatures on the planet that can plan, that can premeditate, if I if I'm using that word correctly, can um, mm. evil.
1: Um, and it's something and in, that distinguishes. And indeed, when you when when somebody commits a crime that mm. is premeditated, it is treated as carrying greater moral culpability right. than if it is simply. Uh, an instinctual reaction,
2: mm. um, but then the whole thing gets really muddled in my head now because that's something which distinguishes us from animals. But then the serpent in Genesis three is the shrewdest of all animals, and then it reasons with Eve as a sentient being who knows good and evil. But it's described as an animal, so I don't know.
0: <laughs> there's something about <laughs> Luke. There's, there's. Uh, I was talking with a friend recently who's a scholar who was, uh, made the observation that the Hebrew word for the winged serpent is not always interpreted or translated into the same English word, and that some of the messengers, I think in the book of Ezekiel, or maybe in Isaiah, in some of these apocalyptic uh, passages that describe the creatures that worship all around God's throne, um, use the same word. Um, so the, the winged serpent as a heavenly creature was a sort of a common... Simple. That's an interesting I don't know, that idea. Doesn't help solve. Doesn't doesn't help solve your question. No, you haven't helped
2: my problem at all, Cam. I'm I am even I more confused ch- now.
1: I, I, I'm not going to solve the problem, Luke. But I do want to challenge a couple of the uh, assumptions that you've that that go into um, the problem that you raise. And the first is that human beings can know uh, can only know evil by being evil or doing evil. And I don't think that's right, and there are clear examples of it. I can know that there is a grave social evil uh, uh, around methamphetamine use, uh, Mm. and I can know that evil without participating in it myself. And indeed, by doing everything in my power uh, to uh, curb that evil. So, So there's that, and we say that God is able to know evil without being evil, and yet we have the passages that describe his death on the cross as taking sin, and indeed, uh, and I'm not sure whether, now I have to think, is this an Ellen White quote, or is this a Paul quote, an Apostle Paul quote, but uh, he became sin uh, for us. And so in that sense, God does... No evil uh, by being evil, uh, because he took that and became that sin Mm -hmm. um, himself on the cross. I do think that does feed into another point Mm -hmm. that Locke was making, though, uh, and that is that God is the one at every point who has taken the initiative. He took the initiative to fix the problem where it was not good right there at the start, and he is taking the initiative on the cross to fix the problem uh, uh, there, and doing it by in knowing good and evil in the fullest sense. Well, um, so right,
0: um, that's that's good, Ken. Just before we we tie off, I want to just come back to where this uh, conversation left off about the the truthfulness of of God and the serpent. Like you said, that um, the serpent sort of imparts some motive to god that may not be there uh, the the you know that god might have some motive for not wanting us to be like him knowing good and evil um and i can't remember what phrase you used but it's it is actually borne out cuz you you read the passage where it says god says the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil uh uh but you didn't continue um God says he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Mm. And he must be banished from the garden specifically because he is now like one of us. So everything that I I think that the serpent is very truthful.
3: And the the parent of young children reading of this story, of course, is that God has overthreatened and in verse twenty-three is forced to follow through on what he has said would be the consequence. He said these people will die, and now he actually specifically engineers the circumstances so that that is true, because he restricts that he forces them out of the out of the garden, re- limits their re- removes their access to the tree of life, so that they will not live forever. Now so I'm what? being a little bit a, a little bit in jest there, well, but everyone who's got young kids knows that they've done that at some point. You, you've in in a in a fit of. Frustration. You've specified a consequence, and when you start meeting out the consequence, you realize, "What on earth am I doing?" Um, but there's, there's, you know, uh, certain issues of authority and and, and whatever. So there, there's a lot of complexity here in Genesis three. Um, well, I that,
2: be- that begs the immediate question because I had always, I don't know if I was explicitly taught, but for the longest time, my assumption was that, and and this is, I think not uncommon in adventism the traditional view of it is that nothing died prior to the fall everything was perfect and nothing died but if adam and eve needed evidently before the fall needed access to the tree of life to not die then they were not in and of
0: themselves as
2: created
0: inherently immortal it doesn't it doesn't say in the account that no one died and it it doesn't when they ate of the tree of knowledge I know evil, I know it doesn't say it doesn't, that but this is what uh, we've been taught Yeah I know but what we've been taught is not at least you know we might be bringing other writings from the bible and other traditions in other words you don't have to read the book of genesis in isolation but if hmm. you choose to It's not to explicit
1: read it, in the text
0: Yeah hmm. in in the te- in, in the it's quite legitimate to read genesis and say god created these creatures they were going to die Death was part of the creation. It's just that if you ate the tree from the knowledge of good and evil, death would be exacted upon you at that moment, Mm -hmm. as opposed to waiting for a natural death later on. Uh, So that's a perfectly consistent reading of Genesis one, two, and three.
3: So there's one other comment that I that I should make. Uh, I think it was last week actually. Someone raised the question: Why did God create this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It does seem to be throwing a spanner in the works early on and. I don't have a good answer to that. But what I will say, looking at the broadest strokes of this narrative, is that the, the fall, whatever it is, however it is, and whenever it happens, in this narrative is explicitly tied to the freedom of choice that God has given to his creation. And it's totally yeah. possible, it's totally legitimate to imagine God creating a, a, a creation that doesn't have... The option to turn against him. And of course, as Adventists, we have a, a great controversy narrative that helps put some, some flesh and context on this. But it has to be seen from these stories that the state observable in the world today, where things that are not desirable or good sometimes do happen, is tied up in the In the, it's somehow necessary. It's somehow interconnected with the freedom that God has given to his creation. That to me is one of the most fundamental ideas that's presented here. And it's one of the most fundamental ideas of the fall. And I think that it's connected with what we need to get on to talking about, which is the covenant.
0: Yeah. Just uh, uh, more on that comment, Locke. So we're going to let it go. We've begun the main topic of the Uh,
2: podcast 20 minutes in.
0: Oh, good. No, no. it's all the main point, the main topic of the podcast. Uh, what I was going to say, Locke, is that um, your, the emphasis on being choice is very strong in the text. Uh, this, the serpent does not lie to Eve. The tree is not especially tempting. Mm. It's pleasing to the eye and good for food, but so is every other tree. We noticed that last week in Genesis chapter 2. So there isn't any, it's not like the fruit is extra delicious on that tree to other trees. It's not, like, it's not like Eve is being misled uh, by the serpent. It's possible, of course, if you read the account carefully, that the p- prohibition against eating the fruit is only given to Adam before Eve is created in Genesis chapter 2. And being perhaps a typical husband, he maybe didn't pass the message on to Eve. Maybe that's... A, a legitimate reading of the of the text, but in any case, there's nothing. <laughs> it would
1: probably be consistent with my experience.
2: I, l- yeah, <laughs> I like it better than the "it's all the woman's fault"
0: reading. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that I think that it's quite. It, it is just as likely to be uh, the husband failing to pass on a message, at least in my household, um, as anything else. But the point is that that it, the cred they're together anyway in the garden is what it says. Mm. so they're tricked they're fooled together um, mm. and and or they choose together they choose together that's the important they choose mm. together and uh, they're not tricked into it and they're not seduced into it they just choose it
2: mm.
3: Mm. yeah yeah so and we, we and rely th- my
0: my friends who are Christadelphians who, who don't believe in a personal devil maintain I think with with some uh, persuade, uh, persuasiveness that we we place too much emphasis on the devil as the originator of sin mm. and it is possible that we're quite capable of becoming our own devils. Now that's yeah. not to well, say that there isn't a personal devil but but we ought to just be a bit careful Ken, yeah. and I Ken how does that, that, is... that
3: sorry Ken how does that hold up in court if someone says ah oh, but the devil made me do it
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh yeah, it's probably not going to be taken <laughs> into account. You still wear the responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> you chose. I, can, and this I, is your point, Luke.
2: Yeah, it, it's exactly my point: is that we read we retroactively read the devil into Genesis three because the serpent is not; he's described as an animal created by God in in verse one. It's 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 an animal created by God. Mm. We then take the devil from. Later parts of the Bible, and put him back into Genesis three, mm. um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure. You know, I would I would probably find um, Cam's Christadelphian friend's arguments quite persuasive because I'm not sure that that's actually a good reading of Genesis yeah. three.
0: C.S. Lewis did believe that there was, uh, you know, demonic powers. But he made it clear that it's quite possible to be a Christian and not believe in them. Uh, I th- that that it is possible, and, and and certainly, I think if you if you disbelieve in devils but believe very strongly in your own moral ineptitude, uh, then you're probably in a fairly well, you know good a, position. Pam, to I, I want to be
2: clear. To I'm be not a saying I'm not I'm not asserting that demons and personal devil, the personal yeah. devil do not exist. I'm just saying they don't appear to be in Genesis 3. Yeah. So
3: this is yeah. interesting because I, uh, even if they're not there are still some things which are definitely visible in Genesis three, and look at what they are. They are relationship breakdown. Because what happens? As soon as they eat of the fruit, their eyes are opened and they notice that they're naked. And that's not just noticing in an in an interest or intriguing way. That's that's connected to feelings of shame, because the earlier chapter said they were naked but felt no shame. So now they note that they're naked. They hide from God, who comes seeking them in the cool of the evening in the garden. When God does talk to them, they start shifting the blame amongst themselves. the the, anim, the, uh, the man says, "Well, it was this woman that you gave me; she led me astray." And the woman says, "But it was this serpent." And, and so that needs
0: to be contrasted. That needs to be contrasted with the spontaneous burst of, you know, poetic joy that Adam, you know, yeah, the first poem is about the, how wonderful this woman is, yeah, Eve, and now. Yeah, so a real so the relationship,
3: every relationship is breaking down, and even the even the consequences that that, that God pronounces, the the curses, if you like, in Genesis mm. three, they they describe ongoing um, dysfunction of the relationship uh, between the man and the and the and the earth that he's meant to work between the woman and the process of reproducing, which was the instruction given to them multiply and fill the earth between the woman and the serpent. There's an animosity. And so there, it seems that whatever this fall is, it is described primarily in Genesis three in terms of broken or breaking deteriorating relationships. And perhaps the most important one in that context is the relationship between the created world and the creator and that's yeah. where and covenant comes in.
2: Not just the relationship between the created world in terms of people, because we do tend to make it all about us. Mm. The relationship between God and the created animals is also broken. He curses the serpent. Mm.
0: And he kills, he kills well, animals to make clothes. Yes. yes. So.
1: And indeed, not just the animals, but the whole world. Paul mm. describes the whole creation groaning, uh, waiting, uh, for salvation so
3: we've we've caught up now to, to what the problem is and, and we're only half an episode behind after being one and a half episodes into the quarter so we're, we're doing pretty well but the solution that we're meant to discuss over the coming dozen or so weeks is this idea of covenant um, so I think that we should probably try and work out a little bit more about what that term means, what are we going to be hearing when we're encountering that word as we continue to explore it through the Bible?
1: Well, it's something, it's a word that I came across very often in my practice as a a civil litigator. Um, uh, And it's important, I think, to understand this about a number of things about a covenant. Um, A covenant is a promise in the eyes of the law. A covenant is a promise in in a deed. Now, a deed is a particular type of document. Uh, It's to be contrasted with an agreement, although an agreement can be recorded in a deed. Uh, But a deed is a document that is formally um, uh, executed in a way that the law then treats as binding on the person who executes the deed, whether or not the person benefiting from the promise um, uh, does anything at all themselves or agrees to it at all. So uh, it's not necessarily an agreement. So it's unilateral. Um, and you used the word earlier, Lachlan, you used the word God unilaterally. And that's what the covenant is. It is God's unilateral promise. Uh, it requires nothing of us uh, to, uh, uh, for it to be binding on God. Um, it doesn't require any particular consideration from us uh, in the sense of uh, a benefit passing back to God from us. Um, It simply is his unilateral promise. Uh, It doesn't require mutuality. Um, It can, of course, be a conditional covenant. And there are aspects of perhaps God's covenant that might be conditional. Um, But it is certainly binding on him independent uh, of any benefit that we might seek to return to God.
0: Can I comment there, Ken? I think that there are conditional elements in, in, in as much as God's covenant applies to individual people. So God says to us, "Look, I'm, I'm desperate to save you. Uh, you're going to have to want to be saved, <laughs> or at least be amenable, or at least be, uh, you know, um, those who seek find." But mm. but God, Jesus doesn't really say that you find it without seeking. So that there seems to, be, but so that's that seems to have some sort of conditional aspect on it. God says, "I'm really anxious to be found. If you seek, my promise is, if you seek, you'll find." And that's got a conditional aspect. But from the point of view of God interacting with with our species, with our planet as a whole, there is an element which is completely unconditional. God is saying, and this is what plays out in Scripture, as a body of people, as a, as my creation, uh, independent of whether you live the way, and and. Be the way that I want you to be. I will institute a plan of salvation, mm. uh,
1: and in, and indeed, I think that's what he does. Uh, that's that's what the cross is—the working out of that. Indeed, uh, there are. I think this sort of an. I find this sort of analysis a little more satisfactory than the um, penal substitutionary atonement model that we sometimes use of the cross.
0: What is that model, Ken?
1: The model where, um, uh. God, Jesus is punished because i'm the one who deserves the punishment but somebody's got to be punished so god meets it out on him and then that's all right because his wrath has been appeased and now uh, i'm I'm safe uh, somebody else has got the whipping that i deserved um, uh, that's the sort of thing i mean by that that model um, and, and and i find that model sort of unsatisfactory in in, in all sorts of ways but but i think the model that is that satisfies me a little more is that um, Luke, you spoke about uh, autonomy, the autonomy of human beings as being central to our species, our, our freedom of choice. And I'm not going to go into the neuroscientific, you know, dispute about that. Uh, it seems that one of the things that Genesis focuses on centrally is the the freedom of choice um, uh, that that we have. So th- there's that. But we were made by God in that way. And in that sense, he is responsible for setting the world up in the way that enables those bad choices to be made. And he then takes that responsibility and wears the consequences of that uh, in a way that I think is uh, mysterious uh, and can't be fully comprehended. And I'm agreeing with Paul uh, in that regard. Um, uh by uh, the cross. Now, not sure about all the detail of that and how it works, but it seems to me that that's how what God is doing here. That's his covenant. I set this up, and I'm taking responsibility for it. I'm going to make it right.
3: So, Ken, let me just check that I'm tracking along, because uh, what you're saying is incredibly interesting about covenants, and I had never stopped to sort of think about this, this aspect, and even the Sabbath school lesson itself Um, You know, it asks the question, is the covenant just a deal or does it have relational aspects to it? Well, a deal sounds to me more like, like a contract or a trade. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we have contracts in all sorts of aspects of life. But imagine that you you, you, you buy real estate, you, you have a contract of sale. And you. the reason I'm picking that example is because it's one of the few examples where ordinary people do involve legal professionals just to purchase something. And there's obviously, um, that's a contract because both parties have to agree. They're negotiating, they're agreeing on price, they're agreeing on inclusions. There's There's a negotiation process and a deal is reached. You're contrasting that by saying a covenant is more like the scenario where I might say, Ken, I am going to commit myself to giving you this piece of property. And I'm not going to stop to ask whether you want it, whether you need it, whether it's even going to be useful to you. That's not part of this. It's not a deal. It's not a not a contract or a negotiation. I'm just going to... Um, Declare or or write or or issue. I don't know what the correct verb is for a covenant. Uh, Ex- execute. execute. I'm going to execute <laughs> execute a covenant. the deed containing the covenant. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I'm going to do that, and then and then what you're saying is that basically you then have the full legal rights to benefit from from that mm. that I have outlined in mm. the covenant. So it's actually not the same thing as a deal.
1: No. Mm. In fact, it's it's very very different to a deal. What what could happen? is that you could turn around and say... Well, I could turn around and say, I reject that. I do not... I'm not going to accept that. Um, But if I choose to accept it, you are bound to follow through on it. And and, and I think that's something closer to what we have with God's covenant with his human creation. I was going to say, I think I can hear an alarm.
2: (laughs) So... That's uh, actually not a terrible place to finish. Yeah, I, I mean... Um, that was a good thought.
0: I think oh that dear, that's... Yeah, we're going to set alarms every week. I I, um, I am alarmed by this. <laughs> well,
2: that that's the purpose of it. Okay?
0: I had all sorts of other different directions to move in, but uh, I think we all do... <laughs>
3: So, so just, just there are a couple that are worth pointing out, and we don't need to discuss them because we're we're going to cover these in coming weeks. But Ken, what you're saying, I think, is certainly eye opening to me. I'm really excited now to think through the implications of some of this. Um, To me, what you're describing fits best with the covenant, the new covenant that we that we get pronounced um, through Jesus, or perhaps executed through the execution of Jesus. Um, if I can say that and yeah, and yeah. the covenants that we find in the Old Testament are a little bit a little bit they are hard covenants anyway there's the covenant where God says if you do these things that I'm asking of you then I'll send the reins and basically you'll be blessed in in material ways and if you don't do these things then pretty much the locusts the plagues and the the marauding armies uh, are going to be the outcome and you know it's okay to say that that a covenant is not a contract and doesn't require the 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 signing if you like a signature from the recipient but what if this covenant includes vast punishments that are to be meted out um, there's there's some sense there in which that's a little bit draconian so I think that in coming weeks as we talk about Noah Abraham and 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 the covenant uh, after the Exodus for example with Moses I think we're going to definitely need to come back and and ponder some of this
1: Kim. Okay. Can you give us, just just give us a couple of points, and Luke, you too, because you had some other things. Just, just give us three or four sentences about where you would have had things head, because our listeners will be interested in that, even if we haven't been able to do it ourselves. That might put them off on some different uh, um,
0: uh, journeys. The contemporaries of the early Christians thought their God to be so weak and insipid because... He can't just step in and solve the problem. To to be unable to defeat his enemy without suffering the indignity of the cross shows an appalling weakness. When you look at this account, you see a God who, as soon as possible, uh, passes responsibilities for decision-making onto his creation. They then make the wrong decisions. Uh, God doesn't follow through with what he said would happen to them he he then suffers a whole bunch of personal angst you know in genesis 6 we discover that god's heart is filled with pain and that he grieves that he's made the man what what sort of a god is this mm. and mm. and that that was a real sticking point point. and it's a really legitimate question what sort of god is this and in what sense is God all-knowing, all-powerful and all-wise? And and in what sense is history is in, you know, we'd say God God is the great architect behind history. Well, I think that, I think the independent of whether we, there's a question about whether we have as much freedom of choice as we think we do. We don't need to have as much as we think we do. We only need a quarter of a fraction of a millionth of a percent of freedom in the things we choose uh, for that to count as freedom of some sort. And and what I see in Genesis uh, really pushes the, the point very strongly. I mean, a lot of the moral complexities that people complain about, about how why do bad things happen to good people, why, why is the world complicated? You know, it starts in Genesis. And unless you say, we are capable of choice to some degree and we don't exercise that power well, and God would prefer to deal with a really messy situation at huge personal cost and a huge cost, not just personal cost, it's cost to us. Mm. Like we're, we're mm. all, God believes in the dignity of causation. He believes that that events and people and his creation mm. should, should have the dignity of, of things actually causing things. He could step in and run it like a machine, clockwork machine with his hand on every atom, steering it the way he wants it to go. Uh, but he's chosen not to. Uh, that is going to make the world complicated. The fact that God has chosen not, not to run the universe that way necessarily makes it really complicated.
1: That, the fascinating thoughts. Yes. Yep.
2: And, and now all my thoughts are in, you know, based on ideas that just spun off from what Cam was saying, um, you know, uh, uh, there's so much. I mean, we could we could spend literally hours looking at all of these details of Genesis three that we didn't even get to, like how agriculture is 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 referred to here as a curse, which is not typically how we think of agriculture. It's from a historical analysis perspective, it's considered to be one of the founding requirements of civilized existence. Um, but here, 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 it's a curse. Um, There is actually the first reference to angels in the Bible at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Their job is to prevent Adam and Eve from getting back into the garden and getting access to eternal life. Um, The serpent, as I mentioned previously, uh, is referred to as an animal as part of God's creation. I find that really, really significant and want to look more into it because we do tend to put angels outside of God's creation. Inasmuch as as we talk in the context of the fall, the angels are not fallen, at least some of them. Um, But the serpent is very clearly referred to here as a shrewd, wild animal, Mm. at least in this translation. Um, And I find that really fascinating and worth looking into more. The whole whole idea of um, what it means to be sentient... And the sort of knowing of good and evil. And I did want to come back to that as well, Ken, with what you were saying. Because absolutely, I agree with you. In the specifics, we can know of an evil and not commit it. And not even be tempted to commit it, really. Metamphetamines are not something I have any interest in. uh, Nor will I ever. Uh, So that one is not a temptation for me. But there are others. (laughs) And so, as an absolute, as a whole, we seem to be, as a species, incapable of conceiving of evil and refraining entirely from it. Yeah, We can refrain in the majority, and the majority is in most of us most of the time, but not entirely. And that's something which makes us different from God, because God obviously can, according to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, so God can know good and evil, and it's fine. But if we know good and evil, we mess up. Um, And that's all very, very fascinating. And then that ties in, Lachlan, to your concept of it's not so clear cut being perfect fall. And then everything just gets steadily worse. The fall is also in some ways a rise. Um, And in the specific immediate context of Genesis 2 and 3, the fall is a rise in knowledge Mm. of good and evil. The fault occurs at the same time that humans gain the knowledge of good and evil—not just evil, good and evil, mm. right? And then we see over the course of the Bible and some of these figures that we've mentioned, that we'll be looking at Noah, Moses, Abraham, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, through to Christ, um, a, a an increase in the knowledge of good mm. <laughs> as well. So it is complex, as you say, Cam. It's very, very complex because God has set the universe up according to rules, but it it runs itself.
0: I liked what you said about agriculture, Luke. There's a a story about uh, Queen Victoria who was in childbirth and was admonished by um, a clergy member not to take painkillers during childbirth because it's said in Genesis that in great pain will women give birth to children. And she apparently said to this person... I'm having the baby and I'll be having the (laughs) painkillers.
1: And no No one, one.
0: you know, that was a fairly commonly stated point of view. But the same men in positions of power within the Christian church were not running around and telling male farmers to stop using, you know, in recent inventions from the Industrial Revolution to yes. just mechanised because it was meant hoeing. to be hard because mm. it was meant to, to be hard to
1: sweat, of the, brow. What, so, yeah, sweat <laughs> of the brow and scratching at the earth uh, yeah. well there are all sorts yeah. of ways we could go there I wonder whether we should look at trying to wrap this up for this episode
0: yeah we should um, <laughs> with the greatest well, of the, know, well, the easiest way to wrap it up is to just ask our listeners to solve all these problems for us we're eager to know uh, exactly what the it all means. To literally everything. Yeah, if you know the answer to life, the universe, and everything, then well, more specifically to the first three chapters of Genesis, it's it's a it's just a very deep, rich, complex, uh, you know, account story. And uh, I've learned a lot from what you guys have said, and I hope that our listeners have have learned lots and given us lots of food for thought and uh, and set us up, I think, for a bit of a closer look at covenant and what, what God's plan is and how that plays out. Uh, if anyone does have comments, they can send them through to the address sabbathschoolfromhome at com. and as always, feel free to share this podcast if you are so moved with your friends or with your enemies and uh, we look forward to you joining us again. Next week, we are going to spend a bit of time looking in Genesis. We're going to look a little bit uh, later on in uh, up to... We stop short of the flood, don't we? Or do we address the flood next uh, no, week? No,
3: next week, I believe we we do get on to talking about the flood. Oh,
0: Good. Excellent. Good. Um, well, we look forward to you joining us then.